excited to announce that today's episode is the first in an ongoing series we are calling Field Notes. They will be conversations we have with friends and colleagues that have recently returned from trips from Mexico researching mezcal and agave distillate production. Today's edition features Michoacan, and our guest is Tess Rose Lampert, who recently returned from a trip with Farron Salmaker. Tess and Farron were there researching producers and planning the itinerary for some upcoming trips that mezcalistas will be offering to both the trade as well as trips for consumers. This is a great conversation where Tess tells us everything she learned from her travels. It's so interesting because, as we know, Every region, every state in Mexico has its own particular style of mezcal production. There are different agaves that are endemic to the region and particular traditions that surround the spirit. Michoacan does not disappoint on all levels. Please check out images and all the relevant links on our website, tuyo.nyc, on the Hey Hey Agave page. And as always, we do invite your comments. If you have any questions about anything we discuss, please let us know. If you have any requests for us to cover specific topics, please let us know. We're making this podcast because we love the community that surrounds Agave Distillates. We want to learn as much as we can about the places where it's made and the people that make it, brand it, and the distributors, the bartenders who serve it, and the educators that teach us how to appreciate it. So please reach out and say hi. You can do that by emailing hola at tuyo.nyc. And as always, I humbly request if you wouldn't mind uh, rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, it goes a super long way. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. And here is Field Notes Michoacan. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Hey Hey Agave. Today is our first edition of what we're calling Field Notes. And basically, it is going to be conversations that we have probably mostly with Tess Rose Lampert, who is here today. <laughs> Hi, Tess. Hi. And Gabrielle, you're joining us as well. Hi. Hi. Hey. Um, so these conversations are going to be uh, sort of little vignettes that we put together um, when Tess comes back from her travels in Mexico researching agave spirits. Um, so this edition is from your recent trip to Michoacan. Yes, Michoacan, which we're really excited to hear about. So I guess let's start off with uh, why did you decide to travel there? So I decided to travel to Michoacan because I was hanging out with Farron, who most of you hopefully know. Um, Farron Salniker. Farron Salniker, who produces the Mexico in a Bottle events. And she uh, spends time in Michoacan, and we were chatting and said, hey, Let's go to Michoacan because that sounds really fun. And we decided that we would go and that we would also set up trips to be able to take people to be able to take the trade to Michoacan so that they could learn about the mezcal culture and interact with the producers directly and also take consumers because those trade trips sound really fun and consumers want to experience the same thing. So we want we wanted to create an experience for all types of people to be able to interact, especially with the regions that are lesser visited than Oaxaca, which is pretty easy to do these days. Well, it, it reminds me of what you've been doing in Durango. Exactly. So Michoacan and Durango are the two places that that we're focusing on, um, and we're doing these trips through Mezcalistas. And they're also going to be trips to other states, but the ones that Farron and I are working on specifically are Durango and Michoacan. And those happen to be the two states that produce 
mezcal that I am just crazy about. I think it is really, really delicious. And that's not to say I don't love the mezcal from Oaxaca um, and other states. Puebla, what up? Um, Durango, hey. Hey, Durango. <laughs> not changing you from Michoacan. Don't worry. Um, but but these two areas really are very special. And I think even more, I don't I don't know. I live in a bubble. But uh, Michoacan definitely tends to, to get ignored um, or stigmatized. So I think it's important that we, we open those doors. Do you know offhand, um, like a a rough number of the, uh, different expressions that are available stateside from Michoacan? I mean, I know that's a tough question, but just from your knowledge of, you know, being on the Northeast. Yeah, I think it's about 20 nationally, and that might be a little bit of an over, estimate. Um, and, and it's not across that many brands. I think it's probably 10, it's probably under 10 brands around 10, but under, and it's probably around 20 expressions somewhere around there. So that's a really tiny number. So there's a lot of room for growth, a lot of room for growth. And one of the things just to start setting the context, Michoacan has a history of mezcal that goes back at least 400 years. And they've been part of the denomination of origin since 2012. So Hmm. pretty big discrepancy there. I would say so. Yeah. So let's start off with the geography, the landscape. I mean, we were talking a little bit before we started this podcast um, just to get people's kind of like your mental map of Mexico. So there's Mexico City and then kind of which is central, south central in the in the entire country. And then I guess if you move laterally to the left and a little bit to the north and a little bit to the south, that's Michoacan. Yeah. Generally speaking. Yeah. I mean, I describe it as central um, and there is a part of it that's on the Pacific coast. Um, I think culturally it's generally described as the north, um, but it's actually the center part of the country. Center west. Yeah. Center. Center west. Yeah. And so um, you flew into the capital city or no, I I we flew into Mexico City okay. and met there and then took a bus. Oh, okay. Um, it's a really pretty ride. And the buses in Mexico, if you've never been on them, are very luxurious. How so? Um, they're really comfortable, big seats. They have pretty clean bathrooms. They give you um, a little sandwich and a soda or water if you want it. It's, it's a pretty nice experience. Not bad traveling. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Um, so yeah, just describe like since you since you were on in a bus, you probably had a chance to see a lot of the landscape and, unless you were sleeping. No, not sleeping. We were eating tortas and drinking beer because Mexico. That's the way to go. Um, the the landscape is really interesting. I think the the biggest difference from what people think of when they think of mezcal country is the the woods. It's very there's a lot of woods. Um, there's a lot of pine trees. There's a lot of different kinds of oaks. Um, So there are significant forests and foresty areas. And then as you go into some of the micro regions, it gets super interesting with almost some subtropical landscape. Um, There was one producer we visited where literally, if you looked to the right, it was tropical. There were bananas growing. Best banana I ever had in my life. Um, avocados, guavas. If you looked to the left, it was pine trees. Uh So we had these two climates kind of right up against each other. And that's, that's really what the landscape is like there. It's, it's diverse, but also super focused. Um, You can see the change. And yeah. Do you see the change on altitude? 
because you were on a bus and if I remember well there's all incline <laughs> until yeah. you don't I more than seeing the altitude I felt the altitude Um, I remember walking up not a steep hill and being out of breath and thinking, wow, I am really out of shape. And then later that day, someone said, oh, are you feeling the altitude? And I was like, I don't know. What would I feel? <laughs> They were like out of breath and, you know, maybe tired. And I was like, oh, okay, maybe I'm not as out of shape as I thought. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I definitely suffer from that. Like I go like two feet above sea level. I'm feeling it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, I felt the altitude. I mean, it wasn't that intense. I didn't get sick or anything, but um, it, it did, you know, your ears pop a little. So kind of like high elevation, deciduous forest landscape. Is there desert in Michoacan too? I didn't really see any desert area. It, it's actually usually pretty cold. Um, the time of year we went, it's, uh, what is it now? August? It's we, August. We were there in July. In the summer. The summer. Thank yeah. you. Um, I know what seasons are. <laughs> um, so it's, it's actually the rainy season and usually pretty cold. It was relatively warm when we were there, but it's, it's, it's a continental climate. So there are seasons. So it can be cold, it can be hot, but it's not... It's not like Oaxaca, for instance, where it's pretty much hot all the time. And then in the summer, it's oppressive heat. Um, it's it's a little bit more dynamic and I, I guess comfortable if you're coming from a place like New York. Mm -hmm. If you're coming from California, it's probably chilly. Farron must have been shivering. <laughs> we'll have to ask her. So what does this kind of climate and landscape mean for agaves? Like what are, in, you know, um, endemic to the area? What can you tell us about what you saw? Yeah, so the main agave is cupreata, or chino is the common name. Um, and it is a particularly beautiful type of agave. It has, it photographs really well. It has really curvy spines, and the leaves themselves are kind of um, almost like crimped. The impressions of the other leaves are really deep and embedded, and they have that kind of like crimped or curly look to them. Uh, which can be subtle when you're trying to tell it apart from a different agave. But once you look at them for a day or so, it's it's very specific. Um, How big? Because you're you're talking about also a different climate. So yeah. they, they, that that will change the dynamic of it. The sizes, they're pretty big. I'm five foot five. Really five foot four. Um, Giant. <laughs> uh, and if I'm standing behind a nine-year-old plant it's coming you know it's coming up to at least my waist or my chest and and definitely as wide as my arm span wow so they're they're pretty large agaves even when when they're just a couple of years old um they're like the size of a big beach ball So just to put it in context for some of our listeners, um, if you've been following along, in Oaxaca, there is um, largely the Angustifolia, which is the Espadin. I mean, of course, there's Karwinski um, or Quiche that grow there pretty heavily as well. I know we talk about Durango, we talk about the Ceniso a lot and the Maximiliana, and of course, the Angustifolia can be found there too. And so now we're in Michoacan, and we're talking about the Cupriata 
uh, or the Chino, and I'm sure Angustifolia is there as well. I feel like Angustifolia is everywhere, right? Angustifolia is pretty widespread. So the other most common variety is uh, called Inakidens, mm -hmm. which means uneven teeth, and it looks very similar to Cupreata. It's not as crimped or curly. Um, and then there's another one that used to be called Ceniso, but the, the CRM actually decided that only the Ceniso Durangensis can be called Ceniso. So they, they now call it the Manso de Sawayo. And then there was actually a couple of different Angustafolias. I noticed that in more than one area, they were planting Espadín. Mm -hmm. And then they also had espadilla, which is like a, a variety of espadín. Mm -hmm. And in some areas, they were also planting blue agave. Not a whole lot of it, but it was interesting to see that that was something so, people were doing. So cultivated completely. Yeah, cultivated. Okay. And I guess when we were talking about the cubriata, um, are we talking about it growing wild? There's a lot of wild agave, and I think... Pretty much everyone we saw um, had nurseries. That's, everyone, what, that's yeah. what I was going to ask you. Yeah. Do you see any important nurseries? A ton of nurseries. And even the cupriata, even as like a little baby hijuelo, looks really cool. Um, but yeah, everyone has nurseries. The plantations are really structured like the, the semi-wild, mm -hmm. kind of scattered around. Um, mm -hmm. It's not really, I didn't really see a lot of rows. I did see one area we passed through. But it was very flat, so it looked like someone didn't really know what they and were doing. A lot of times the um, strategy for doing this, just because we, we spoke to Herman with you not too long ago, um, and he was explaining to us that, you know, originally they tried to grow in like flatland and rows, but they found that that just did not work for the type of ceniso that they were trying to um, cultivate. And so they had to go on steep hills, rocky soil. So I'm sure that everybody's figuring out what works best for the species. Yeah, they're figuring it out. And I think like other regions, they're benefiting from the experiments that have happened in other areas and the other thing is there's a really there seems to be a lot of involvement from um, other environmental groups so it's not just oh let's plant agave on this hillside because the agave grows better but it's also this helps prevent erosion and it helps prevent landslides so it's really tied in um, and you know one of the places we visited not so different actually from the ranch that we visited with Germán um, in Mesquital. It, the, the place that we visited, the ranch that we visited in, in Michoacán is a nature preserve. And mm -hmm. when we visited, we were actually accompanied by bio a biologist and her two students who were there looking for bird species. And she was explaining to us how the integration of agaves into the landscape is about way more than Mezcal. Certainly. Yeah, that's so interesting. So let's talk a little bit about the production style. What did you find? So the production style is definitely more in line with what we call the north. Uh, you know, so more similar to Durango than Oaxaca, for example. Um, with the name Pinatas? Yeah, yeah. They're not called Palenques. Um, Binata would be a more common name for the place that it's made. Um, and the so starting from the the cooking is in in-ground pits, um, definitely. I did see a couple of pits that were not lined with stone, which I've seen in Oaxaca as well, but it was just interesting. What Were, were they not lined? They were not lined. Oh, so it was just like dirt? Yeah, and so mm -hmm. in two of them, because it was the rainy season, they were filled with water. 
And so I, I asked about that because one of the producers said that they were distilling yesterday. And I was like, no, <laughs> I was like, I don't think so. Cause you're they're they're Their orno, roasting pit is filled. The Orno was filled with water and there were like plants, like green, fresh plants growing out of it. And I was like, this couldn't have been used for a couple of weeks at least, even if these plants were like really healthy. Yeah. And he explained that what they do is they do the first distillation and they have their ordinario, the first distillate, and they hold that back. And then they just do the second distillation as needed throughout the rainy season. What's the reasoning behind that? Um, I think so. I think there's a couple things. I don't know. I'm speculating. But one is that this particular producer had um, events and visitors. So I think that it behooves them to be able to be producing when people are visiting. It's optics. It's optics. Mm -hmm. I think also it is they might not want to make it if they don't need it. You know, they have their reserves, their reserve stock. You know, when when we have conversations with you fairly often now, this, this is not the first rodeo with <laughs> asking you questions and hearing your expressions and all this, but it seems that people were more hesitant of being communicative <laughs> as like, you know, we, we talk about Herman, we talk about Oaxaca, we talk about all these other places, Binateras and, 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 and um, Palenques and, seems like there was you you were having a little more of a hard time of getting information out of Michoacan. There's a sentiment that I noticed where and I've experienced this in all of the regions for sure, but I think because Michoacan is still I guess we can say like being discovered, right? People are rediscovering Michoacan. People still play things pretty close to the vest. Okay. So, and and this is this is an experience I've had over and over again, but you know, you have to ask the same question literally five, six times <laughs> at different points. Well, at, you get the same answer? No, you get different <laughs> answers. Um, and, you know, you, but you can tell. It's mm -hmm. like anything else, you know, and you know when someone is just telling you the truth, you know when someone is, is telling you their truth, and you know when someone is just saying something and it doesn't seem quite right. Yeah. Especially if you guys were traveling for the first time, visiting places for the first time, which I'm not sure if you were, but I'm sure that, you know, there's kind of a getting to know you phase, you know? Yeah, we visited five places and of those five, I had visited two before. Mm -hmm. So three of them were brand new. And I think for Farron, um, four of them were brand new. We had both visited one of the producers, but separately. Okay. Um, small world. We like both know yeah. the same producer in Michoacan, of course. Of course. Um, so let's just get back to production style. Yeah. So roasting in the ground. So roasting in ground. Um, and then for crushing, mostly uh, crushers, machines. Mm -hmm. And some producers had like a little canoe where they would do some of their their crush by hand. Is this um, optics again? I think, yes. I, I think it's optics. The explanation that I was given was... You know, we do some machine and then some hand and then we blend them together so that we get both. I mean, I feel like we, the three of us, have had lots of conversations about shredders versus by hand and, you right. know, the physical damage that it does to people. And ultimately, I mean, I feel like everybody that we've talked to about this has sort of said the same thing, you know, like, well, it's sort of like the authentic romantic style, but it really doesn't make that much of a difference, well, if any difference at all. There's a full category out of it. 
There's That's a full the category out of it. You know? I'm definitely pro shredder. It's something that out of my blind tastings, I don't think alters the flavor um, as significantly as something like fermentation. I, I don't know. It's, it's a whole other can of worms. But I'm pro shredder. Or I'm, Can't cer- wait I'm to certainly hear. not anti shredder. We welcome everyone's opinion on yeah. this subject. Please email us at hola at tuyo.nyc. I'm pro maso. <laughs> Let's have a whole shredder subreddit thread. <laughs> right. Um, so mostly shredded. And then the fermentation pits are generally in ground. Um, we saw some interesting thing for fermentation pits. So we saw in ground in wood. We saw in ground concrete. We saw above ground stainless steel, above ground stainless steel lined with wood. And then we saw some plastic, which we were like, what's up with those plastic fermentation tanks? And they were like, we are switching away from those, which is, mm-hmm. you know, we're like, fantastic. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Please don't ferment in plastic. Um, so I guess the, one of the newer models and like maybe semi-industrial is to have these um, stainless steel tanks, but then have them lined with wood so that they are, mim- you know, it's mm-hmm. mimicking a more traditional mm-hmm. style. And the in-ground um, fermentation tanks, were they sort of Durango style that was like coffins, kind of shallow? They were coffin-like. Uh, the ones that I saw were a little bit bigger. Not all of them, but some of them were a little bit bigger. And then one of the comments that we had from someone when we asked why, they said we're, we're replacing these with overground wooden containers like they do in Oaxaca. And we said, why? And they said, it's more hygienic. And we speculated that maybe it was because of, um, so in, in Durango, the, the vinatas, I'm sorry, in Michoacan, the vinatas are generally placed by a water source. They're usually near a water source. That was kind of like the most important thing back in the day. Um, there's a whole history of mezcal being clandestine. Um, interesting. So you needed to have a place that was kind of out of the way and the water source was the most important. So, a lot of it is gravity and it may be a hilly area. So we speculated that if there was water runoff during the rainy season or something like that, if you, and you're, you know, supposing that your vinata was on a flat place, that maybe the runoff would get into the fermentation tank or something like that, mm-hmm. which would make sense why they would say it's more hygienic to have it above ground. It's not always the case, but I could, I could see why that would be the case in some circumstances. I see. I guess I thought like automatically, oh, well, if it's on the ground level, that means that there's more debris and stuff. I guess I could get in there, but yeah, maybe that would just add to the ferment. I don't know. Right. Yeah. Well, a lot. And so another thing about the fermentation is because some of the areas are cold um, and the water source is natural, uh, pulque is used sometimes uh-huh. to start the fermentation, which I have not done enough investigation nor tried enough mezcal. Uh, that's fermented with pulque versus not fermented with pulque from the same variety from the same place to really say. But I will say that most of the mezcals that I had that were fermented with pulque, delicious. And just to remind our listeners what pulque is, it is the the liquid that is uh, when you take an agave and you carve out the center and all of that liquid pools in the center – that is then fermented over the course of a day to four days, and then you drink that. And it's sort of like kombucha-ish, I guess. 
It's kombucha-ish in that it's probiotic, um, but it tastes kind of like... It's really close to natural wine, I will say. It's kind of close to natural wine. There's also... uh, We've been drinking this um, agua fresca de guanabana, um, and it kind of tastes like that. Yeah. It's kind of like milky. Yeah. It's like a milky beer. I know that doesn't sound good, and but fresh, it is. I mean, everybody kind of talks about the sliminess to it, but really fresh pulque is not very slimy. The, I had slimy pulque because I always thought, I always heard that too. And I was yeah. like, my pulque is not slimy. Yeah. <laughs> but then when I was in Puebla, I had slimy pulque and I actually liked it better. And I don't like slimy things. Like I don't like okra. Huh. I mean, if it's fried, yeah, but whatever fried. Right. But um, I'm not a, I'm not like a fan of slimy, but this was kind of slimy and it was really good. So before we start drilling you about the different producers that you visited, mm-hmm. what did you bring for us to try today? Ah, so today I brought a bottle that um, I knew we could finish, you know. We're doing a good job. We're doing a really good job. I knew we would. I mean... It's a small water bottle size. Yeah. I would say, I don't know, what is that? Like, you know, uh, 16 ounces? 16 ounces? I don't know. 12 ounces. 12 ounces. Yeah. And it wasn't all, it's probably like 10 ounces. I mean, that's still a good amount. Yeah. Of mezcal. It's a good appetizer. (laughs) Um, So this is a 48 or 49, I don't remember, percent uh, cupreata. From La Unión Mezcalera de Michoacán. No, that's just a water bottle that okay, I had sorry. that I put in there because um, I thought it was cute. Gabrielle's reading Michoacán. from the, the label on the water bottle. I mean, you got to know if the mezcal comes in a, in a plastic water bottle. It it's has great. nothing to do with the label. Um, so, yeah, this is a, a 48, 49% cupreata uh, from the Charo uh, region, which... It's it's technically Chato, but also like really close to Tzitzio, which may probably doesn't mean anything, but um, these are different towns. Uh, I have to say that the most complex names in Spanish that I know come from that it, from Michoacan. The mixture of vowels and and consonants is insane. So like, insane. Like there's all these cutting sounds that they're pretty amazing. Yeah, there are a lot of names. There, we met a little boy actually at this vinata, and he was saying, "I wish I could say it, but I don't. I can't even." But he was trying to show me and Farron how to say the name of a town that was like ten syllables long, <laughs> and it was impossible. We just couldn't do it. Mostly consonants all put together. <laughs> yeah, really. Re- I I like the way that it sounds, and I like making those sounds, but um, it is it is tricky. I'm gonna say one more thing, and super fast is. The monarch butterfly sanctuary is in Michoacan. So oh, besides besides yeah. all the agave and all these amazing things, like what you can understand what it looks like is, you know, thousands and millions of butterflies coming from all the way north yeah. to the migration. migrate to Michoacan. And that's why they make. So it's absolutely amazing. Yeah, if that's not magical, I don't know what is. So. Needless to say, you'll be organizing a trip during that time period. Absolutely. <laughs> Definitely. That and the, I mean there's Michoacan actually has so much to offer. I think Michoacan gets a bad rap because people write it off or associate it with maybe some of the more unsavory aspects of of things that happen in Mexico, but um Michoacan is 
awesome. There's so much going on. There's the butterfly sanctuary. It's considered the soul food of of Mexico. Carnitas. El lago de Pascuero. Pascuero. Absolutely what beautiful. is that? It's a giant, giant uh, lake. And Pascuero is the town. So if you saw Coco, Day uh, of the Dead, that's yeah. Pascuero. Okay. And we, we were actually there and it was the lantern festival. So they were setting off all these paper lanterns at night and it's it's a really magical place and I, I am not the most well-traveled but i'm pretty well-traveled throughout mexico and michoacan is really special it really is i don't know what region i don't say that about i mean i do but i'm not going to say it publicly <laughs> <laughs> so um who is the producer of this beautiful expression that you brought for us so this is from don valente and he produces for two brands that um, are currently imported, though I don't believe either of the brands is in New York just yet. Um, so this is uh, Le Legendario de, de Domingo mm-hmm. um, and Nacional. I think Nacional is... I see Nacional? I see Nacional bottles here. I don't know if, you know... That would be great. They, I, they, they, yeah. they were in Mexico in a bottle, so we, we yeah. met them and they're beautiful people. And... Legendario Domingo has probably one of the most beautiful labels. The colors are absolutely amazing. Yeah. I mean, both brands I really liked. I really connected with the the owners of the brands. And then it was nice that we got to visit. And um, under his own label, um, which I forget the name, which is not very nice of me. Um, but it's it's something cool. I think it means fire. Uh, we'll put a link to it. Mm-hmm. Um, he has actually won various awards. So, you know, he's a well-respected maestro. Um, and, you know, it, it took a little while. And, and this is the property also that was kind of tropical on one side and then forest on the other side. Wow. It was really cool. But um, where is the Venata located in the property? Is it like... So it's, it's on um, a little... It's like on a little ranch. It's it's right next to the creek, actually. By the water source. Yeah, Yeah. right by the water source. And then there are some plantations, like little, the nurseries are in the front. And then it's, it almost blends into the landscape. I do have some pictures. um, But when you look, there are actually these like fields, again, not in rows or anything, but the land is just littered with these gorgeous agaves. And then we took a little walk and we saw some of the the wild agaves, the inakidens and like just giant. Um, inakidens is also called uh, alto. When we were doing some research uh, with agaves, I found two completely different pictures of the inakidens. One was very pointy, mm-hmm. like with the pencas basically facing up. Mm-hmm. And then the other one was more of what you're talking that it has not waves but a little curvy, more curvy. But they were yeah. they were from the same region that is probably Michoacan Guerrero, all that area. That, yeah, but, uh, it's they they were very. I almost thought that they were two different. Well, agaves. I think it just gets back to the point where, like you know, if these agaves are reproducing by seed, there there's a lot of mixing going yep. on. Yep, yep, yep. There's a lot of mixing going on, and Inakidens in particular you know it's built into the name uneven teeth they it it can be hard to find the uniformity mm-hmm. among them yeah. it, it can also be easy to confuse them when they are kind of that like wavy texture with the the cupreata yes mm-hmm. um but i started i started getting a little bit of an eye for it the cupreatas are cool too cuz when they're really happy they get shiny which is awesome oh cool yeah that's interesting 
Um, so back to Don Valente, his vinata, and do we call the do we call them uh, vinateros or mescaleros? How's it go in Michoacan? I think it's mescaleros because okay. it's the Union de Mescaleros, and so it's kind of like splitting the difference yeah. between the north and the south, right? We've got elements that makes of sense. both. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Cool. So, um, so he had nurseries. So, mm-hmm. um. Uh, the and the small like ijuelos like the little plants he plants around his property mm-hmm. what were they growing where no what um mostly what? cupreata okay. yeah and so then um he's he, planting them in um like along the landscape kind of like you know how like sometimes you see pictures and they're like in these beautiful rows on flat land yeah. versus you know growing up a steep hill like what was the situation at his um venata it's kind of like it was kind of chaotic, which is in line with what I saw everywhere. It was just kind of like agaves everywhere. It, so we actually took some pictures um, and, you know, uh, Farron got in between, like walked into one of the little patches and then she looked like she was being born from the agaves. It was really cool. And it was like agave patch kids. <laughs> so it looks kind of like that. It looks like the agave patch. Where you have to share that photo with absolutely. us. Absolutely. We'll yeah. 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 Back to... Don Valente, is there anything else that you wanted to describe about either this expression or what his production style was like or what you found while visiting? Um, I mean, he it was really nice visiting him. It was it was kind of a, a taste of the history in a lot of ways because it was a remote property. Actually getting there, um, we had hired this taxi driver and the taxi driver from the get-go was kind of like, a lot of the taxis didn't want to go outside of their region, whether it was Pátzcuaro or Morelia, the capital. They didn't want to go just an hour outside of town. They clearly felt uncomfortable. And our taxi driver started driving up this dirt path. And it's the rainy season. There was some mud. And the whole way he's like, my car is not going to make it. I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to make it. And we were like, okay, cool, dude. Like, do you? We'll just get out and walk and you can wait by the road where you feel comfortable. Like, you can go have lunch. And sure enough, we were like going up this hill and the cars started to swerve a little bit. What kind of taxi car? Like, are we talking this? Yeah. (laughs) Some small, tiny little, tiny little, you know. Um, And so we were like, we're just going to get out. And I think that he didn't expect us to be so strong and determined. I think he expected us to be like, no, you have to drive us. And we were just like, it's cool. We'll walk. No problem. Um, But it was cool because it was it was remote and it was also um the land i believe that his grandparents had had started it was it was in his family for generations and uh, it was just breathtakingly beautiful it's one of those properties you can just kind of wander around and literally just walking around was enough and we had this big thunderstorm when we were there and you know we got a little rained on but it was great and like traditional food it was it was you know, that, that like classic yeah. experience that like you're imagining. Family operation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Family operation. Um, and yeah, it was nice to be able to see the process and, uh, how many people were there? There, it was maybe 10 of us in total. Okay. Uh, you know, there's always, whenever you go somewhere, there's always like a group, right? And there's always like an extra person here or there. Mm-hmm. Um, but it w- w- one of the coolest parts, of course, was once he realized that we were into the mezcal, right? It's, it's vulnerable for them to be like, this is my product. Do you like it? Um, then he kept bringing out 
new stuff. He was like, <laughs> oh, well, if you like that, well, let me break out this private collection stash. Um, so we got to try a lot of different things and give some feedback about what we thought, which is a really, you know, it's it's a humbling experience. That sounds amazing. You know, sometimes when, when we talk about all this, you find that just because... And, and this comes from somebody that lived in Mexico for many years, the alcohol content is not as higher as we like it here. Mm-hmm. You know, here, meaning New York, meaning the States, that if you get a 45, a 48, a 52, like you want the higher numbers, at least on the mezcals. Uh, but it's not something that you find at often. Do you were, were you able to see that? Like on the in the private stashes, obviously, like yeah. Well, so this is a good example of that. I would say that in general, um, it was pretty good actually. So this the forty eight forty nine percent is what he bottles, and then okay. the fifty three percent, which I also you know we bought two liters of, um, that that was not bottled, right? Um, How does he keep it? In in garrafones. Okay. Yeah. I mean, we, we, so Farron and I had been collecting empty water bottles, like straight up bag lady style. And of course we left it in the taxi. Oh. So we were like, we want to buy mezcal, but we don't have bottles. So they had to empty out, um, their like refresco bottles. Yeah. (laughs) I actually, I'll have a picture. I'll send it to you where I'm carrying these two, three liter bottles full of mezcal. And then on the way out, um, we had to walk because again, it's rainy. You can only drive so far. So we had to walk back to the the truck, and uh, it was quite a hike. After we had lots of carnitas and mezcal, so I'm like, <laughs> and I had extra bottles in my hand and my purse. I had like six had like a liters. Yeah. yeah, I had like six liters yeah. of mezcal strapped to my oh, body. Yeah. And I was like, I'm working That's for like it. An extra 15 pounds right there yeah. or something. Yeah, totally worth it. Makes it taste better. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and so, does it have a hint of Coca Cola? <laughs> no, they did a really good job washing no, it out. They, I know they were very <laughs> thorough. That's their product, you know. They have yeah, to. yeah. Um, talk to me about Don Lupe. So Don Lupe is another producer that we visited. So um, in Sitio. So they're they're actually really close together. These producers are 20 minutes away from each other. Um, and in Sitio, we visited Don Lupe where they had uh, all of the, it's a really beautiful property. It's kind of situated right on the edge of um, a mountainside where you can see down into the valley. And in the distance, there's like a little painted church and it's just, it's mm, really driving picturesque. around. Yeah. It's p- driving around you. I mean, it calls to mind like those, those murals on like Mexican restaurant walls where you're like, that's not real. And it's like, <laughs> it is real. That's why they look like that because yeah. that is the, the real vista. So, um, it's breathtaking views. Their Vinata is pretty new. They just redid it. And they had everything set up so beautifully to be able to see the process with the Filipino type still. We didn't talk about that with the price. We didn't talk about the distillation. I think we got to fermentation and then stopped, right? Um, we need to backtrack and <laughs> fill this in. So the, and it's mostly the, the Filipino type still and um, usually a wooden still top and then a copper a copper uh, plate on top of that. And I have good pictures so that this will all make sense when you can see it or did better it yet. A, did it look a little bit like the ones in Durango? 
Um, yeah, a little bit. There's, there's a little bit of that of yeah. a, like wooden hats. Fili- yeah, Fili- absolutely. Filipino okay. type still, but not refrescadora. So it's two distillations. It's exactly. It's two distillations. Um, and so they, the, they have these big copper hats and there is actually a town that makes most of the copper stills for all of Mexico in Michoacan, um, which was cool to visit. And so they had like a new copper hat and, um, it was like, you could really see the process. So that was, that was really interesting. Do you remember the name of the town? Because I is San Santa Clara de Cobre. Yeah, is is one of all the other things. Like you know, you have the monarch butterflies yeah. and Santa Clara de Cobre yeah. is one of like the main it's highlights highlights of, of of Michoacan. Yeah, they had um, they have a torta de tamal. I'm sorry, torta de tostada. So it's a tostada in a torta, and it has carne apache, which is meat ceviche. Which I did try because I'm brave and I so, always eat everything. So it's like a corn tortilla. No, thing. It's a tostada. It's a tostada. Yeah, crunchy, Hard. a crunchy tostada. A crunchy tostada, but in a torta. Yeah, in it's bread. Yeah, that's what I was trying to get at. In okay. bread, it's like crunchy, a duck yeah. turkey. <laughs> Turducken. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> that was cute. <laughs> oh, you say in Spanish is the other way around. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah, yeah. So back to Don Lupe. So that brand is called Desentierro. And um, that means like the opposite of burying. Is there a word for that? In Unburying. English? Unburying. Yeah. Like digging up. Exhuming. Or? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Exhuming. The is, the... is basically when you're taking a dead body yes. out of it. Yes. Out of the. Is that the word for it? Exhuming? You exhume a body. Yeah. Yes. So it's exhuming. Exhume mezcal. It doesn't oh. sound as good but in English. Isn't it? There's, there's some story about... Uh, that's how they save it? Yes. Okay. There's a lot of story like about... folklore? Well, it's not exactly folklore, but it's a couple of things. So um, there's a... Uh, again, I mentioned this already, but there's a real history of mezcal being clandestine. So I've done a lot of research about the origins of mezcal and the history of it during colonial times, and I've translated original texts. And so I know what they say, but... I also think it's important to listen to the people who have the stories that were passed down from their parents and their grandparents who lived this, right? Who saw with their own eyes their grandparents having to move mezcal in the middle of the night. And we're talking about bootlegging. Bootlegging, yeah. yeah. Well, keeping it secret because, um, well, there's, I mean, this is, it's just a fascinating topic, but, you know, there were, there was a time, especially in Michoacan, um, which again, remember, very possible, I would even say probable, hopefully I'm not making any enemies here, that Michoacan was making mezcal even before Oaxaca really had its heyday with mezcal. If you really look at where the origins of mezcal come from. But particularly in Michoacan, there would be government officials who would like sniff out vinatas and destroy it, destroy them. So you would have to hide your mezcal. So one of the ways that you would do that is by burying it. And then it also became a way of saving it. Even the wives would be in charge of burying it so that their husbands, the people who made mezcal, and drink it. would not drink it. <laughs> or your neighbors would come because you sold mezcal and you would be like, sorry, I don't have any left. And they couldn't say, yeah, you do. It's right there because it was in the ground. So sometimes if, if you would make a mezcal and you literally wouldn't even know where it was or how much was left because your wife would hide it from you. And... <laughs> And it's good. And I mean, on that topic also, won't go too much into this, but there are way more examples than we think about 
of women taking over distillation because their husbands pasaron de copitas. They drank too much while they were making it because they make a good product and they like it too much. So mm-hmm. what happens? Mm-hmm. The women figure right. it out. And you how don't want to do lose that. You can't. Right. It's your livelihood. Yeah. So, a few puntas. Yeah. It'll go a long way. <laughs> right. So there's a lot of lot of history with burying the mezcal, particularly in Michoacan. This particular producer gave me the the story um that when he was, I guess, tilling some land they to like build the vinata or something like that, they found an old bottle. Oh god. Dude. And they don't know how old it was, and they opened it up and they were like, This is mezcal. What was it stored in? Like glass? glass? Yeah. Had and so been, they right? tried it and they were like, yup. And so then they started burying their mezcal and they um, have a... Fa- you mean to let it rest? Yeah. Resting uh-huh. it in the ground. They don't do it for all of them, but they do it. They have their regular, they have their enterrado, their buried one, and then they have a pechuga. And um, how long did they rest it for? Do you know? I think it was something like at least six months, like six to 12 months, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe in, it was a in, full 12 in glass months. in glass yeah. in the ground. A few minutes ago, we were talking about this other person and you said that they don't, they do the first pass and then they hold. That's a, yeah, this but was the, them actually. But that, that was the interesting thing. Like why, why hold any if you can rest it? Like finish the product. Well, we've talked about I, I know, I know it's, 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 well, it's you know, I different think, kind of ways of doing it. But I think it wasn't super, I don't think it was all optics. I honestly, I don't know that there's like that much marketing thought going into it I don't know but I I don't know exactly I can't I can't put the pieces together I'm sure there are things that you know I don't know I'm not mm-hmm. a mezcalero sure but I think that it might also have to do with that's like a their, their specialty product and they might get orders for something else so they don't okay. know what they need to produce um would be another speculation mm-hmm. um so uh yeah and it, the rested one is Really good. Yeah? Yeah. What did you notice? Um, so as it rests, I guess the molecules kind of settle into each other. Any like harshness or like burniness goes away and it gets sweeter, more fruity, more more lactic. Um, really tasty. I mean, you definitely notice a difference did, between them. Are these expressions available stateside? No. the This brand is not imported and they were actually out of the rested one to purchase when we were there we ended up getting the pechuga which was really tasty um but they uh they do a festival they do like a big party and I, where they unearth the mezcal and they're not the only ones but obviously their brand is called this in Piero. they have this story you know it's very built into what they do they also produce for the leyenda Mm-hmm. So I can't say with 100% certainty that this is where all of the de leyenda is coming from, but that is the impression that I got based on the signage. That is what I was actually going to ask you about because I think this is a really good moment to discuss what did you find with yeah. the signage? So if you've been to Mescal country, you might know that when you're driving around, you have no idea where you're going. You might be on a dirt road. It's kind of scary. And then you pull over and you ask someone and they give you some like weird directions. And you're like, okay, I guess I'll keep going. What happened in Michoacan is uh, there's a union of mezcaleros. And they got together 
And um, there's this thing called the Ruta de Mezcal, which, you know, everywhere has the Ruta de Mezcal. There's this couple, Sergio and Argentina, who have this project that's integrated. So they produce the Ruta de Mezcal in conjunction with the Mezcaleros. And they also have a store called Casa Mezcal, where they basically charge wholesale price. Mm -hmm. It's really just a way of getting the product to people. They're really behind this effort. Basically, what happened is, you know, it's up to the, the government to put the signs up. And rather than wait around for the government to put signs up, they were like, we're going to put the signs up. Do There's you mean when you say the government, do you mean like the CRM? No. Or no. the government. No. Mexican it, for tourism, you know, is that like a we have to mention this often, but it's it's something important to say it's another country. So it works very, very different in many different ways that this. So trying to think the way that we do things here and apply them in the middle of the mountains in Michoacán, it doesn't work. That's a really right. good point. So it's a very important thing. So the signage most likely even if it was begged and asked for years, they will not be delivered. No. So if there's a few brands that they have been doing good, that they have the back, literally, of the people that they're working with, and like, I sponsor them. I see. Right. You know, it's not, it's not like put my brand everywhere. No, it's, mm -hmm. I sponsor them. So the signage was incredible. You're driving on this random back mountain country road, you have no idea where you're going, and all of a sudden, and I have pictures of this, there's Ruta de Mezcal with the logo of Ruta de Mezcal, plus the name of the town, Arrows, and the logo of the Mezcaleros, there, and the, the brand. So the name of the Vinata plus the logo of the brand, so That's that you awesome. can follow it to the Vinata. It's incredible. It's, it's really, it, the fact that they're pioneering this, every other state, should be doing this like everybody's quiet like oh they just you know where the vinata is but who do you make or yeah whatever. and there's no like point to it because even with the taxi and with us it was just so much easier to find the places and the other thing is if the brand is sponsoring it then you know who they're producing for and and Wonderful. there's a lot Wonderful. of conversations about transparency yeah. but yeah. if someone is producing for a brand there's nothing wrong in knowing that and it, i mean I think it's good to know who's producing for who. I think they're also proud, to be exactly. honest. Exactly, like right. If, you know, it's, it's kind of silly, but if you're in Mexico City and you're in the airport, and it's, it's a very strange thing, but there's not that many brands in the Duty Fear, for example. Right. And one of them is the Leyenda. It's, it's, a, it's a very, it's, it's an older brand that has a lot of foot in many different places. And, you know, being able to see that they help in some way or form of, of shaping the the athletes to reach the right person. Right. That's pretty cool. I mean, De Leyenda has done so much for the mascal category, right? And it once you get to this Vinata and you see it, I mean, who wouldn't want to be associated with it? Absolutely. So it was, it was really cool because it took out a lot of the guesswork um, of, you know, who's producing what or more logistically and, where these producers are. And to that point, you know, you were able to purchase some expressions that were just there for from the producer, right? Well, I purchased their 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 house brand, so their personal brand. Um, and this is something that you'll find 
you know, fairly frequently that a, a mescalero, a, a producer, a vinata, um, will have their own sort of house brand and they'll also be producing for other brands. Absolutely. And it might even be surprising that they're producing for different brands. And I think this is a conversation that people still feel taboo about. Like, it's not, we're not really sure as an industry, like, is it cool to out who's making what brand? And I mean, I don't do it thinking that I'm breaking any rules or, you know, doing anything groundbreaking. I think that, yeah, of course. I mean, why should it be secret who's making... It's just, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a complicated thought, but if you have a if you have a pinata that has a specific distillation process, that it has uh, resources that they're limited to the geographic zone of where that is, the, the materials and the end result that is going to be the mezcal might be very similar from one brand to another. And I think that's where the difficulty is because you're not doing something that unless it's a very specific mix or it's a very specific batch or if a very specic maybe maybe well, a chemically engineer I mean, we did mix we, we talk idea. about you know the hand the hand of the maker no as, but what i'm saying right. is like this is the same hand of course so if it is a, if it is one pinatero or one palenquero or maestro palenquero that is is doing you know three or four brands is i i can see the difficulty for him to say you know is all the mezcal state the same right you know right and i so you know i have a background in wine and spirits generally and you know like irish whiskey distillers there's one master distiller and one master blender for lots of brands the same people who make you know yellow spot and red breast also make jameson mm-hmm and you know, when, mm-hmm. when we talk cool ab- people too, you know, mm-hmm. and, and they're not, so they're not all the same. Clients have different requests and field blends, field blends. Uh, that's what I think is like a very right. interesting and just, thing. Well, what we talk about all the time, you know, the terroir, like the time of year, what, what harvest is it? How like old are the agaves? Blah, blah, blah. The proof. There's the proof. Sure. Yeah. There's so much that goes into but it. What I'm trying to think, and, and, and this is Pandora's box, obviously, the, the only way that, not the only way, uh, one way that it would be very interesting to say same palenque, same maestro, mm-hmm. same resources, mm-hmm. different field, uh, field blend because we decide the percentages on the field blend that we feel that is the brand representative. Mm-hmm. You know, that will be kind of interesting in the future when, when you mean, have this kind of conversation. Sure. I think this conversation is sort of loaded and hopefully we'll have different iterations of it in the future. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so but something that just, it comes, it comes to mind and I'm very interested to know if you have, if, if you had any insight about this, how do the mescaleros that you spoke with, how do they feel about, um, kind of giving forward that information about who they partner with or I, work for yeah, or, you I, know, produce for. I don't think that it's something it, it, I don't know, honestly, because without going, you know, specifically not being specific here. Right. Right. <laughs> um, it, I, I asked a lot of questions and I got a lot of different answers. So I think some people feel like they shouldn't disclose and some people feel, are happy to disclose. Um, and I don't know how the representatives of the brands feel, to right. be honest. 
You know, I don't know. I don't. We know. I mean, a little bit just from like the rumblings that have been going on in the past few months. There's been a lot of conversation around this, which we don't need to get into now. Um, you know, but I'm. I, it's been a question that's been burning in my mind of like, you know, what do the producers themselves feel like? Like, what you know? How do they advocate either for themselves or you know, like what's in their best interest? There's there's something that is very simple. If the name of the Maestro Mescalero and the area that is being distilled and, and used for the bottle brand, whatever whatever that is, it doesn't matter whose brand is it. But if you can see the name of the Mescalero, the type of agave and the process, that's transparency. Like you can see that same name in a few different brands, sure. You know what you're getting. And like I would say there's, there's no, no lie. There's nothing wrong with that. I, I think that we should definitely destigmatize that Absolutely. that happens all over the wine and spirit industry and it's not a negative including this information or knowing one one person making multiple oh I brands see. yeah absolutely that doesn't you know that that takes away really from good the point. romance of it for you then maybe like readdress re, you know rework the framework from yeah. which you're approaching it yeah. that's why i have no problem saying oh, I visited this producer and they produce for this brand and this brand because I don't see anything wrong with that. I'm sure some people will. I'm sure at one point I'll say something about someone who's producing a brand and the brand owner is going to get real pissed off at me. Well, if they don't show who they're using to well, produce, that might know, be a problem. And I guess this is a really good way to sort yeah. of like, let's walk ourselves back to the original conversation, which was about signage. Right. So right. that was one of the cool things for me is the primary purpose of the signage is to make it accessible for people, which I think is amazing. That is one way to jumpstart the industry. They, it was really an effort to be like, hey, we don't want this to be super hard to find. We don't want to make it impossible for you to find like, you know, a maze. We want you to be able to find this. Dri you're driving around. Michoacan is lovely. Drive around. Oh, you see a sign for, for a mezcal producer? Take that detour. Go visit them. So it's really encouraging that tourism. And one of the side effects from my like geeky point of view is you get to see who's making what. Mm -hmm. And obviously, if they didn't want you to know who was making what, they wouldn't they put wouldn't the put sign on. Sign, right? I would never disclose information that I knew was trying to be kept private. And as much as I want to dive into that conversation about, you know, the ethics of that, I think that's a separate conversation. There's something super interesting to say too is this is not Tulum this is not Cancun this is not a infested uh with tourism area right it's not Oaxaca either you, we were we were just talking to you uh off of Mike and one of the questions like were there other people that looked like you meaning American white ladies yeah and you were like nope, nope. <laughs> so all the signage most likely is for local, you know, f to bring local uh, business. Local and, and national. National, national. Yeah, because Michoacan is a is a tourist destination it is, for, for, Mexi for Mexico. But you don't, you don't Mexico. see it in the blog. You don't see the, no. you know, nobody opened a Rosewood Michoacan yet. Right. They Not will, yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, mm -hmm. you know, or, or you don't have a Pujol, Criollo, uh, not yet. Not no, yet, and, the, and the food is absolutely fascinating. So the what food we're saying is, is amazing. Like, what we're saying is this is a uncharted territory for a lot of us that we, us, as I'd say Americans, because I have been in New York for 15 years, 
travel into the more comfortable Mexico. It's a little bit off the beaten path yes. and it's so worth it. And one thing about the food, which is really cool. So you may know that a lot of the ice cream and popsicle stands are called La Michoacana. And that is because Michoacan has the largest diversity of fruits from which to make uh, ice cream and paletas. So that's why it's not just one chain. That's so cool. It's not all of the Michoacanas are one big company. If you're in New York, you can have New Yorkinas. They're great. New Yorkina, yeah. If you want like really good Mexican ice cream and paletas, New Yorkina, la New Yorkina. I mean, come on. No one beats Fanny at that game. I think quickly because we're getting over an hour. Oopsies. <laughs> Whatever. Um, you know, the field notes are going to be long, period. There's so much to field, be... Dis- field novel. Field novels. <laughs> We're going to be field noveling. Um, Emilio. Yes. So the other producer... Well, we visited... One of the other producers that we visited was Emilio, who is the mezcalero for Don Mateo and Siembra Metal. Mm-hmm. So that's all um, Emilio Vieira. And he is awesome. And his mom... Doña Delia, who is the president of the Unión de um, Mujeres Productoras de Mezcal. So the the women oh, producers women of Mezcal. Okay. Yeah, the women of Michoacán got together and were like, we are going to make our own group of the women who produce Mezcal. And some of them are like the wives or people who work with the producers, but it's a powerful group of women and it is amazing. So this is not the first time that we've heard of women organizing together to be stronger, to be more visible. And to, aside. Yes, and, and to differentiate themselves. When we were talking to Farron, she was talking a lot about how a lot of times out of necessity, women will come together and they will organize and they will create these these coalitions, these unions, so that they have more power, yes. essentially. Yes. To get more exposure, to, to, to get what they should rightly have intrinsically, but because of many many things um it it doesn't happen that way i would uh, absolutely and i would say that in michoacan for the most part the men are from what i saw uh, certainly the partners of all the members of the the women producers of mezcal coalition um really supportive they're like i can't do this if i didn't have the support of this woman and it goes back in history and and doña delia was explaining to us like even just back in the day where you didn't have electricity or it was too dangerous because it was clandestine, holding the lantern at night so that they could finish the distillation. Um, one of the other cool things about it was she was saying that when, and she's the president, they made her the president because she's incredible. This this woman is amazing. Um, I could go on and on about her. And her traditional cooking is next level. <laughs> um, but uh, she was saying that um, by organizing amongst themselves and doing things, they actually made the men stronger. They made the whole industry stronger by accident. Just by being in touch with themselves and organizing different things, it actually boosted all of the efforts of the men. And I think it's such a beautiful example of what's happening on a global scale culturally, you know, some areas more than others, but this rebalancing of masculine and feminine qualities. When they're in harmony, everything is better. It's not 
the raising up of women and putting down of men. It's by raising up women, actually everyone is that's is, a really that's a really good point. And just to be clear, this un this women run union, are they all f women producers? So or they, do they have different roles? They have different roles. Um, but it's specifically called producers because they all have an essential role. Um, whatever their role in their business is. Yeah. So, and just like any other business or um, trade, you know, you say there's a master mascalero or mascalera, of course, but when you produce anything, it takes many, many hands. It's a family affair. Mascal is the, you know, you have the name of the mescalero, but you know it is the family because it, it really is. And again, specifically being unspecific, um, we... We know that there. We met a woman um, that that produced because her husband basically was drunk, mm -hmm. and so she produced for um, years, for twenty five years. She was the distiller, and she never took credit. Her name was never on the bottles. Um, her children are really invested because she had to keep the children in the vinata with her to keep them safe, and um, you know, and and then she had to stop producing because of, of health reasons. And mm -hmm. she said she was crying out of sadness not to be able to do the heavy work anymore. Mm -hmm. And that really, that really made me rethink the way that I thought about it because, you know, I, I'm, uh, you know, pretty progressive. I'm a strong, independent woman. Um, there are a lot of strong, independent women in my life. And I, did kind of subscribe to the idea that distillation, the actual distillation of mezcal is heavy work. It's hard work. It's man's work. Right. And it's not, I realize it's not, I realize that women, it's physical work, it's physical work but I realize that yeah. when, when push comes to shove, there have been many women throughout hundreds of years who, you know, know how to distill. Um, so that was, it was cool to, to hear that, uh, from people. Yeah. So I guess, you know, getting back to a little bit about what we were just talking about with the women in the union, um, I did want to ask what it was like for you and Farron traveling around as two women who were researching different producers and mezcal coming with both of your backgrounds, which are, you know, extremely well educated. I would call you guys experts, although I know that you don't, you all don't like that so much, but um, more than enthusiasts, like you have done a lot of work and research within the field. But yet again, you know, here we are talking about what's it like being a woman traveling. <laughs> right. So, um, yeah, I mean, Farron and I are definitely well, well informed, well studied. And I mean, I think we're both pretty badass, right? We're both fluent in Spanish. We both grew up with Mexican culture. We're not your average white ladies. So, um, I know that separately, we definitely have this element of culture shock. Um, and together, it, it takes people a few minutes. So again, we knew um, some of the people that we were visiting. We have relationships with them. But for three of the producers, we had no relationships with them. And communicating with them through WhatsApp Right. It was very difficult. Yeah, trying trying to schedule yourselves or be like, hey, we're coming. Like, we right. really want to talk to you. We're very interested and in whatever. Yeah. It's yeah. not really like that. Yeah. And like there's not service most places. So it was it was a challenge trying to get in touch and explain why we were there. Um, once we got there, there was definitely 
uh, this shock where, again, we're used to it. They're looking at us and we're talking and all they're thinking is white lady speaking Spanish, white lady speaking Spanish. But you're also not a buyer. You're not, not a buyer. Bus- you're not You're not a businesswoman that comes in and say, I want to buy half of your production. Right. So in fact, why, we're the, why, we're, why should I tell you anything right. about we my come, business? We're know? asking these questions, you know, and mm-hmm. w- they're like trying to show us their production. And we're like, yeah, we know the production. We're good. Like, yes, of course we want to see, but we don't need like a 30 minute tour and explanation of like, this is the agave. Right. Then we cook it. Then we crush it. But I think that, you know, so usually we had to get over that first hurdle of, hello, we are young women. Yes, we are white women but we speak Spanish. We know Mezcal. We're trying to do business with you, not for our benefit alone, for our mutual benefit. Mm -hmm. One of the things we're doing with our trade trips is we are charging for the expenses. We're not, we're not a brand. We don't have a big budget. We don't have any budget. In fact, all we can do is donate our time and work. And then we are going to have 100% price transparency so that as a member of the trade, you see exactly where your dollars are going. You see how much money you're spending on, um, on food and transportation, how much money the mezcaleros are getting, because it's great when you go and visit someone and they give you a bunch of mezcal to try and they give you food and then you buy some mezcal. That's great. But that's their samples. That's their time. And they should be compensated for it, especially by us. You know, we have jobs in and you're learning and you're learning mm-hmm. and we're mm-hmm. learning and you're learning something that is equally as valuable as, as if you were being paid by the hour because what you're going to be able to say about a brand about a region right. about a space about a person right. and is going to also- be equally as important as how people are going to see you as Oh, shit. But it's also allowing a little bit of independence and autonomy for the trade, the people that are coming over from the trade. So instead of being sponsored by a brand and saying, hey, come on over and see what awesome work we're doing. I mean, that's all well and good, but you kind of lose your independence in that regard because everything's paid for you, you know, yeah. and you might feel inclined to want to be supportive of them because of that. I'm not, I'm, I mean, sometimes that happens. I, I've done that. Sure. I've been flown first class sure. across the pond to see a certain whiskey producer and you know what now I walk around being like I like that whiskey producer because they won me over with their fanciness right I'm not uh, above that but also you learn from them so I when did. when somebody tells you oh how how come you know oh I went there yeah right so absolutely I, they, I went, benefits they, I know but what I'm to, saying from, I went there but is what a I'm whole saying different is story. the independent aspect of it being like that what Tess is talking about is organizing these trips where you know people are paying money to do it you're so choosing to go you're choosing to go and you're you know exactly where the money is where it's going to so everybody's making money getting paid being able to sustain themselves and with that there's an autonomy because you get to go you get to learn and you get to form your own opinions and not feel beholden because you were hosted or treated right. to this, you right. know, all inclusive experience. Nobody <laughs> owes anyone anything. No. It's, right. it's it's authentic. And that's why we, we design the trips differently for trade. It's really focused on really covering expenses while getting the full experience. Whereas the consumer is you get the full experience with a little bit more comfort, a little mm-hmm. bit cushier. It's, you know, we designed it to be exactly what each group wants. Um, And I'm sure there are some trade people out there who are like, "Mm, I want to go on the consumer trip. And yeah, yeah, you should. Absolutely. Um, But And then then, yes, you should pay for it too. Yeah. Because this is, the cake is big for everybody. So everybody should have a a slice of it. And it's Mm -hmm. investing in 
in the culture that you're so passionate about. Um, but just to get to get back to your original question, what was it like for us traveling around? It was challenging. It's hard to be taken seriously. We were not taken seriously right off the bat, and we really had to prove ourselves. And that really came in a couple stages. So after they realized that we were serious about investing in them, that we weren't asking for anything for free, and that we were really trying to help them promote themselves, um, they started to be like, they started to take us a little bit more seriously. Also, really when the connection was made is once we started tasting their mezcal, which can be vulnerable for a producer to say, here's what I make. Do you like it? And they realized, yeah, we like it. And then we wanted to try the stronger stuff and the private collection stuff. And then we were super into it. And then by the end of each visit, we had made a strong connection with each producer. And, you know, they were, they really felt like, we we were doing something together and that's that's a beautiful thing i just had this thought and i wonder if you would agree um in a certain aspect i think that you're stronger and better off being two women than being a woman and a man yes because there's almost another level of hurdle to have to get over in that in that space you know absolutely yeah i mean we we traveled around with uh farron's stepfather and it was nice to have a big man with us but like the taxi for instance literally did not hear us when we spoke we knew where we were going we had the information and he would literally only listen to him so you know it was and and i understand if you know, there's two young women and a big man the mescaleros instinctually going to go up to the man but they realized at some point he was just along for the ride to have a good time and to learn and to have and probably doesn't know nearly as much as you guys do and but and he, he <laughs> knows a lot and he was he's wonderful but we were there doing business yeah. and they realized we were the ones there doing business and you know it's something that we are sensitive to we know we're white ladies. We know we're not really Mexican. And so we're careful about how we do this to do it in a respectful way that really is adding to the culture rather than just taking away from it because we are outsiders. At the end of the day, we grew up with Mexican culture. We are both very passionate about it. And we don't want to be in a situation where, you know, it's like, why are these two white chicks leading groups to Michoacan? We want to be the people where they think, wow, these white ladies really figured out how to bring Americans here in a respectful way that is mutually beneficial. That's what we're going for. And I think that we're doing a really good job. I mean, I, I feel lucky to be working with Farron because... yeah. Absolutely. And I think that your your history and your record is pretty public. So if if people don't know you already and they want to research you, you're, everything's available. All of the publications that you guys have been involved in and all of the projects and, you know, and, and so it speaks for itself. Yeah, you can look me up. I also make good salsa. So that counts for something. <laughs> well, you guys, um, Thank you so much for this first edition of Field Notes, Michoacan. Her salsas are great. We look forward to trying your salsa in the future. Muy picante. Salsita. Salsita. Hey, hey, is a production of Tuyo NYC. Brittany Prater is our editor. Your hosts are Gabrielle Velasquez Zazueta and me, Sabrina Lassard. Our music is by Milagro Verde. Find them on Instagram at Milagro underscore Verde BK. 
Thanks so much for listening, everybody. Salusita.